morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Steve Williamson here. Sitting across from me is Saint Karen <laughs> It's been that kind of day. I, I uh, hopped in my car and um, the windshield was a little d- dirty, so I sprayed it off only to find out that we were below freezing and my windshield froze and I had to pull over and scrape it before I managed to, to get my... Um, uh, derriere to the station. Um, we have, I think, a really interesting show for you today. Um, we probably neglect uh, foreign affairs to some extent. I, you know, we're in the middle of the country and so forth and so on. So almost all our focus uh, is is on uh, domestic affairs. T- uh, today we're talking to the uh, president and CEO of Americans for Peace Now. Um, uh, Hadar, Suskin, are you there? I am here. Hello. Wow. Sounds, you sound really good. You're coming through really clear. Uh, right. Americans for Peace Now has been around for quite a while, right? It's not a new organization. Correct. We're working on 42 years. 42 years. I didn't realize it was even quite that long. And... You have a relationship with an Israeli organization, uh, the peace movement in Israel? Yes. Peace Now is really the the first founding uh, member of the peace movement in Israel. They've been around since 1978. Since 1978. So we're talking about organizations that have been around for a long time. And... um, uh, Mr. Suskin works with uh, with all kinds of government relations and with uh, Congress and with uh, um, pretty much he seems to your, your organization seems to uh, coordinate with a lot of other organizations. You seem to spend a lot of time talking to other organizations and talking to people in American politics. Absolutely, I mean part part of our work is, as he said, with Congress, with the Biden administration also with state and local government officials, you know, county councils, cities, and much of it is done in partnership uh, with other organizations. All right. So I guess my question I I mentioned to you before in talking to people here in Sedona um, is that the the peace movement in Israel, for example, seems to have, have faded. And I wondered if that was true of uh, the peace movement in the United States. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for having me on today. Sure. And I have been to Sedona, although it's been far too long, and it's a lovely place. So I'm, I'm happy to be there by, by phone today. Um, you know, I think you have to make the distinction between the political parties and leadership of what we call broadly the left and the peace movement, the NGO organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, if you look at this most recent Israeli election, which happened just the week the week before our U.S. election, uh, you know the right wing has returned to power. 
uh, and the, the left-wing political parties really did not, did not do well at all. Even the, the ones in the opposition are much, much more the center than really the left. Um, if you look at the peace movement, the organizations, the people who are involved, so it's a little bit of a different story. Not, not to say that they're, they're winning because that, because they're not, but if you add up the, the votes, and again, Israel has a, a parliamentary multi-party system like you see in a lot of European nations, so it's a different way of voting. And if you add up the votes for those who voted for soon-to-be, again, Prime Minister Netanyahu and his right-wing parties versus those who voted for the opposition, the opposition actually got 30,000 more votes. Um, but because of the way the parties broke down and some of those parties didn't reach the electoral threshold, so they're votes get thrown in the trash, uh, you end up with a right-wing government. So uh, that's my roundabout way of saying there are actually some very strong, very vibrant, very important peace movement organizations um, working in Israel, starting with our colleagues at Peace Now, but including many others. And um, one of the ways you can tell that they're vibrant and strong is that just today, uh, the man who is one of the newly elected or soon-to-be ministers. Uh, they're still negotiating the government, so it's all sort of in a transitional period right now. Just at a conference announced that they need to deal with the NGOs differently, the human rights NGOs. They need to seize their funding, and they need to be criminalized. Um, this is, of course, a horrific anti-democratic move, but they wouldn't do that if those organizations weren't working effectively. That's a very good point. I mean, the, in, in the American press, the uh, the election has been called the most right-wing Israeli government in basically in history, and filled with some of the most um, um, violently uh, prejudiced folks around. And um, it's returning a man who who is who is. Uh, uh, has more scandals than Trump, probably. And so I think that people who are looking for peace in, in the Middle East get uh, depressed by this whole process. I mean, we look at the election, and uh, I think you bring out some interesting facts, but the fact is that the far right has now assumed power again in Israel big time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, w I wish I could tell you you're, you're wrong, but uh, no, that's, uh, this will be, and again, the, the government hasn't been formed yet, so I'm, I'm hedging a little bit because there's always a possibility strange things could happen. Um, but this is most likely going to be the most right-wing government, the government where Netanyahu, who, as you mentioned, is, is, is under indictment and has an ongoing um, trial around corruption and bribery, he's actually going to be you know, the reasonable center of his government. And I say that as somebody who does not think he's reasonable at all. Um, but it's brought in particular two uh, new people into government, one named Itamar Ben-Gavir and one named Betzela Smotrich, who are far, far right um, supporters of the uh, the now, now deceased uh, American Rabbi Mayor Kahana, who led the Jewish Defense League, who was... Mm. Uh, designated a terrorist by both Israel and the United States. These are people who are deeply pre prejudicial, who talk about deporting all of the um, Arab citizens of Israel. I'm, I'm not talking about Palestinians living under occupation in the West Bank. These guys would like to, to 
support the 20% of Israeli citizens who are uh, Palestinians. Um, They also, again, are going after the NGOs. They're deeply homophobic. They're deeply racist. They are, you know, the worst of the worst. They are the the Lauren Boberts and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the Israeli government. And they're most likely both going to be senior ministers. Wow. Well, I knew the situation was bad, but I I didn't know the details of it. And uh, you're right to point out that the Israeli government is formed in different ways. That you have a uh, Israel has a parliamentary system um, that almost all the rest of the world has adopted. I think you know maybe France took our sort of a presidential system, (laughs) but pretty much nobody else adopted it. None of the democratic countries. They all went for. for parliamentary representation. All right, so where does that leave us that uh, the Israeli government is so far right? Is it is it liable to lead to more war, more conflict within Israel, or or is it is going to be a lot of slogans? Well, there's definitely going to be a lot of slogans. The question is what what comes beyond that? And I think if again, if the government is formed as as is expected right now, it has the the possibility and even the likelihood of being incredibly damaging. And that's true both in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also in terms of, again, every domestic policy in Israel. You know, one of these people could end up being education minister um, or, you know, again, they're, they're climate change deniers and they could be environment minister. So it's not simply about the conflict, about almost every uh, issue that you know, that exists in the Israeli political scene. But when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian scene, uh, it's very dangerous. You know, last year we saw, really for the, the first time in a long time, significant violence in Israel proper, again, not in the occupied territories, which are not Israel, in Israel, significant violence in the mixed Arab Jewish cities in a way that has not been typical even in other times of conflict. And I think the likelihood is there for that to explode. Um, the likelihood is, is there for greater violence, greater oppression and greater violence um, in, in the West Bank, in the occupied territories, conflict with Hamas in Gaza. Um, all of those are possibilities. I think, you know, one of the really important questions that we are dealing with right now is, what does the United States do, and how does the U.S. respond to this? Um, well, well, let's go there. How how should the U.S. respond to this? You know, I think <laughs> that's one of a the big most question. But yeah. for American political leadership, is to be very clear about what our policies are and what our priorities are in the region, and to stand up. You know, to stand up for those. I mean, Israel is. Um, a sovereign, independent country. They had a democratic election, again, democratic within Israel, not counting for the occupation. Um, so this isn't an issue of election denying or saying they can't do that. But this is an issue of saying, you know, we, the United States, have our own policies and our own priorities, and we're going to stand strong for those. And the U.S. plays a very important role, right? The U.S. Um, not only not only gives tremendous, tremendous amount of uh, aid to Israel. It also gives aid to, to the Palestinians, although on a much, much, much smaller scale. But it's also the political black backstop internationally for Israel at the UN, at the International Criminal Court. So I'd say two things that are perhaps the, the good news to, to start with, because we, we 
need a little good news in this. Um, in the last two weeks since the Israeli election, two relevant things have happened. One is that um, the Biden administration, this has been widely reported, although not confirmed by the administration, but I, I think it's uh, pretty clearly true. The Biden administration has told incoming Prime Minister Netanyahu that they do not want to deal with those two particular uh, members who I mentioned before, uh, Smotrich and Ben Gvio, that he should not appoint them to roles in which they're going to have to interface with the United States. Now, that's a problem for him because they are um, among his largest coalition partners and so traditionally would be due senior roles like defense minister or foreign minister, both of which are roles that, of course, engage very, very heavily with the United States. And if the U.S. says to him, we're not going to talk to them, um, that's a big problem for him. And it's actually been reported that that's one of the reasons the government hasn't been formed yet is because Estela uh, Smoltrich is demanding that he be appointed defense minister, which just looking at the sort of election results is not unreasonable, right, for, for him in terms of what he should get for the size of his party. Um, but Netanyahu has at least to date been unwilling to do that because the United States has said they're not going to talk to him. So that's a positive step of the U.S. stating its own, you know, its own priorities and doing something, you know, we're not telling Israel what they can or cannot do. Again, if Netanyahu wants to appoint him defense minister, he can do that. But the U.S. is saying this is what we're going to do. Um, and the second piece is around, you know, the, the real tragedy that took place earlier this year, which was the killing of the Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhri. Um, she was killed covering what was a, an incursion, a, you know, uh, in, into the occupied West Bank. The uh, initial Israeli government response was actually claimed that it was Palestinians who had done it. They then moved on to, actually, we don't know and it's impossible to find out who did it. They then, after a series of investigations, said, okay, it was likely that it was an Israeli soldier who did it. I, I think it's very clear. There have also, by the way, been investigations by news organizations like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the AP, and others, and then a range of human rights organizations did their own investigations. It's quite clear that she was killed by an Israeli soldier. Um, what's not clear, because you can't, you can't know intent, is there, there are people who say that it was, that it was done intentionally. Um, personally, and again, I don't, I don't know either because you can't know intent, but I don't, I don't believe that she was targeted. I think that she was clearly killed by an Israeli soldier who clearly was not following the rules of engagement. Um, but one of the things that has come out of this is, you know, she's an American citizen, and like any American citizen who's killed abroad, their family has the right to ask for and receive a, an FBI investigation of that killing and what happened. And Israel has uh, pushed back against that, and the U.S. administration for many, many months had not been willing to do so. They said that they were basically satisfied with the other investigations. Um, and then last week, the FBI announced that, in fact, they are launching an investigation into her killing, which um, the Israeli government immediately came out and called a grave mistake and said they would not cooperate. So we are seeing in these two examples the United States and this administration sort of standing up for its own. And I can tell you, as somebody who spent the last few years working with this administration and, and pushing them to try to stand up for our priorities, one of the things that they that was often the response, usually off the record, was them saying, well, we can't push too hard on what was the previous government, because if we push them too hard, 
that government could end up falling. We could end up with Netanyahu back as prime minister. Well, unfortunately, that the latter part of that, ending up with Netanyahu back, has happened. And so the question now is, is that going to um, free up this administration to be willing to push a little bit harder? And in these last two weeks, we've seen at least these two, uh, you know, th- these two occasions that. I was just read the CNN report on the shooting of the of the reporter. Um, she was shot in the back of the head, um, probably yep. from a armored personnel carrier. And from I noticed the, an armored personnel carrier. Yeah, I, yeah. I noticed the first statement that one of the Israeli uh, uh, military spokesmen said was. Uh, that there were, you know, Palestinians armed in that area, which nobody else has found when they've done research. But he also said the reporters, and maybe it's the translation, but he said the the Palestinian reporters were armed with cameras. And you can read that as this uh, very bitter attitude to toward the coverage of Israeli operations by um, – by Palestinian uh, reporters and and news people. Um, And I wonder if that attitude, if I'm reading too much into it, if that attitude is not helping to precipitate, like, her being being shot. Um, You know, I don't know. The guys who are with... The, the the shooter in the in in the armor personnel are going to t- know exactly who did it. They may oh. even know his politics. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, there's no there's no question that the Israeli government, the, the army, knows who did it. And, and I'll tell you this: you you didn't uh, read this in my bio, but that's fine. You know, I, I served as a combat soldier in, in the Israeli army. I'm a dual citizen, and I, I so. I've been, thankfully, not literally in that spot, but I, I was a soldier in the Israeli army myself, and I'm familiar with, you know, the rules of engagement. And it's part of the reason why I said, it, again, this is personally, no one can know this, but I don't believe that she was targeted, and I don't believe that the soldier, uh, you know, looked at her and said, there's this reporter, I'm going to shoot that person. I think the far more likely, and again, I say likely because this is all conjecture, you know, we talk about soldiers. They have tremendous responsibility. They have rifles. They're also 18 or 19-year-olds. That doesn't take any of that responsibility away from them. But I think the vast likelihood, having been in, frankly, some similar situations, is that there was gunfire happening. We know we know that that was true. There was fire, and somebody shot without following the rules and without doing what they were supposed to do and, and you know, and shot her and saw her. And didn't, you know, didn't go through the procedure, didn't make sure that they were, you know, identifying somebody who was a threat or not. Um, and so, again, that's not, that's not an excuse. That's an explanation. That person is responsible. And far more importantly, the Israeli army and the Israeli government and their policies and procedures are responsible. And that's why I think it's important that there's an independent U.S.-led investigation. Because Israel did an investigation. They no doubt know who, who did it and what happened. But there is no... Um, there's no response to that. There's no changes to policy or procedures from that. I guess the, the skeptic would say that there probably be all these investigations 
she'll be forgotten. I mean, uh, the Palestinians will try to keep her memory alive, but she'll be forgotten. The incident will be forgotten, and uh, history will move on, and nothing will happen to the the fellow who shot her if something should happen to him. I mean, there well, should be. I mean, I don't, I don't think by, by Palestinians or many others, I don't think she's, got, she's going to be forgotten no. anytime soon. But, you know, the issue at hand is, in, in my view, less about what should happen to that soldier. Mm-hmm. Again, he, he is ultimately responsible, but it's a much broader question than that. And one of the things that's come out of this is the introduction of a piece of legislation that we at Americans for Peace now are supporting called the Justice for Shireen Act, which would require a part of the U.S. investigation looking into whether any U.S. military equipment, and again, because of that aid that goes to Israel, much, not all, but much of the Israeli military equipment comes from the U.S., whether any of that was used in this instance, because there are a number of laws, most specifically the, the Leahy law named after Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, mm-hmm. that prohibit the use of U.S. military equipment um, in basically a broad number of ranges of ways, including specifically this. So this could be one step to lead to, um, you know, better U.S. policy looking at how our military equipment that is then sold to the Israelis, how is that used? Is it being used um, in human rights violations? Is it being used to uphold the occupation or other things that are against U.S. policy? So there can be, ultimately, and it's, you know, it's a a long step. This isn't going to happen today or tomorrow or next week, but there can be policy changes that would come out of something like this that would be very significant. Yeah, that would certainly... That would make a difference because she can't be brought back from the dead. She's gone. And right. if you could change policy so that this didn't happen again, I mean, that's what we're always trying to do. Um, you know, for example, in the civil rights movement, we see the people getting really beat up and we try to put in legislation to keep that from happening so that the police and, yeah. and wherever and, Alabama know, and stuff can't do that. A broader sort of good news if we talk about the U.S. elections that just happened, and we look the Senate, too, but actually particularly at the House, even, even with the change from Democrats to Republicans, if you look at the new members coming in, you look at the new Democrats coming in, because this issue, like almost everything else in American politics, has become just 100 percent partisan right now. I mean, there's no – it used to be even, you know, a dozen, 15 years ago that you could find some bipartisan – uh, consensus around this, or you could find at least individual members, you know, Republicans who might line up with, more with Democrats on this issue. But that that's no longer the case. But the good news is that you're seeing more and more Democrats come in who look at this issue as part of their, you know, collective progressive worldview, and they don't want to they want to de-exceptionalize it. It's no longer well, I'm you know really progressive on all these things here, here, here except I have a different set of rules for Israel-Palestine. And so we're seeing more members of Congress who um, want to be engaged on this in a positive way, who are speaking up about this, who are you know, asking questions about things like the use of American weapons um, in the region, and who I think really want to, to change the politics around this, where it, we go away from the, you know, 
from the frame where to be pro-Israel, frankly, as, as Republicans and, and right-wing groups describe it, really needs to be anti-Palestinian and anti-human rights and more and more anti-democracy. Um, and to go to a frame where we're looking for human rights and justice and dignity and peace for Israelis and Palestinians in equal measure. Yeah, we've always had an idea in the U.S. This, yeah, uh, our own politics on these issues that if the country itself is somehow a friend, we should be turning a blind eye to what they do within the country and a- apply different rules. You know, we did that, you know, in, in the in the 70s and the 80s, you know, with countries who were anti-communist, so they were therefore our friends, and we would not make comments. And you're trying to distinguish between the internal and external policies of the countries, and that's always been an issue. And it's you know, yeah. with with Israel, and things that you know, is it you know, on how do you criticize? The, you know the actions of a foreign government without criticizing the people of the government, or you know, being you know the difference between an anti-Israeli statement that the Israeli government did something that was anti-democratic, you know, anti-human rights versus an anti-Semitic comment where you are, you know, they did it because they were Jewish, you know, and that sort of distinction, which has always been hard in the U.S. and still is, and still pops up all the time. We see that all the time in issues. You know, your one of the recent blogs on your your uh, page there about the boycotts you know, mm-hmm. of, of issues of laws in the United States that say you you know you can't do business with our state if you are, uh, are, if you're willing to boycott Israel you know it's you know whether your personal politics affects your just, yeah. to, to put a fine point on that it's not if you're willing to boycott Israel it's unless yeah. you're willing to pledge that you that you never don't yeah. will boycott yeah. Israel you have to it's actually the, the flip side yeah. right it's not keeping out just people who are actively doing so, and you've yeah. got you've got a case in Arizona, but yeah, that's the that Mick, Mick Jordahl. We ha- we had him on our show. I mean, he's the movie boycott when they showed it at the yeah. film festival, and you know, Mick Mick is a resident of Sedona, so he's he's been on our show talking about that issue of you know the and lots of other issues. Yeah, personal. Yeah, the the yeah. civil yeah. rights issues. Civil rights issues on, on yeah. yeah, yeah. And Mick's story is very powerful, but sort of even further is Alan Leverett, who is. Um, the publisher of the Arkansas yeah. Times said, right. yeah. because he is in no way boycotting Israel, and he's not interested in boycotting Israel. He just is unwilling to give away his First Amendment rights. Yeah. And he's, you know, his work, his work in Arkansas. He runs a small newspaper. They get state advertising for a community college, and they've told them that he has to sign this thing saying he's giving up his First Amendment right to boycott in order to do so. And and so it's it's much more extreme than just keeping out people who are actually boycotting Israel, which is also, of course, not okay, because that's a protected, a protected First Amendment right. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of when um, all our professors had to, were asked or forced to sign um, um, pledges, of, of, uh, basically sign on a patriotic pledges that they had to, they had to do. I think that Karen's point uh, strikes me as is one that I hadn't thought as much about is the exceptionalism of Israel is that the United States has added toward Israel is kind of the most extreme version of the exceptionalism we did to a lot of countries who were doing what we wanted to do at various different stages of American policy over the decades. Um, because the U.S. is one that's gone, you know, gone up and down, obviously, in the last, you know, number of years. You know, Trump was sort of at the, you know, the depths of this, and other presidents have elevated yeah. the idea that the U.S., you know, that 
it's okay. You, know, you should be dealing with countries who you know believe in human rights, who right. believe in in small d democracy, and we should be doing that. That's part of what America should be doing, you know, in in, in the political and non military aspects of life, which you know, which is you know, it's nothing wrong with the government saying you know we're not going to talk to somebody, you know. If this is your government, we're, we're, you know, it's going to make a difference. We're not going to sit down at a table and talk to you about certain things. And that seems to me the right of any government to sort of say that because that's nothing, you know, that's not trying to influence necessarily the internal policies of someone. It's, it's just making a statement of your own political and humanity that you, who you want to deal with in the world and what you want the exactly. world to look like. And there's a distinction, right, that. Again, the people are complaining that, oh, the U.S. is interfering in internal Israeli politics. And it's just, it, it's actually the parallel with the First Amendment conversation of like, oh, you can't, you know, I, I can say what I want to say. It's like, you can do things, right? No one is telling, no one in America is telling Israel who they have to elect or who they have to put in government. But it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean that the U.S. government would not then rightly do or not do certain things. So it's not interfering. If the Israeli government decides that they want to appoint Bezalel Smotrich to be the defense minister, they have every right to do so. And you know, no NGOs and no Israeli government, no American government is telling them that they can't do it. But it doesn't mean it doesn't come with consequences. And you know, Karen, to what you were just talking about, the exceptionalism, the piece that I think is um, it's true, it parallels the way the U.S. has dealt with other countries in the past. But there's an additional piece that. In the past, we sort of were willing sometimes to turn a blind eye to things because, you know, like you were saying, somebody was anti-communist or other things. In this case, it's not that they're doing what we want and so we ignore other pieces. It's that fundamentally this incoming government, for example, is very likely to do things that are not only sort of morally or ideologically not aligned with the U.S. government, you know, if we talk about racism or homophobia or things, but actually specifically against our U.S. policy on the issues related to them. So things like the occupation and annexation of the West Bank. You know, if they go forward, as, as they may well, and say that they're going to annex the entirety of the West Bank, that's against U.S. law and against U.S. policy. So speaking out against that isn't us doing something in spite of the fact that we're aligned, it's literally speaking out for our own policy priorities. I think that's a very good point. Uh, let's take a minute out and what, what, how do you, how do you see this thing beginning to resolve in a more um, positive way? Because as, as someone in the U.S. who's been around for a long time, starting to, uh, in, in um, you know civil rights movement back in the '60s. Um, what we what we see is basically the Palestinian being badly mistreated for either right or wrong reason, decade after decade after decade, with every piece of progress seeming to be pulled back at our to 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 something negative. And so uh people I think even on the left have sort of given up that anything good is going to happen in the area because as soon as we think that there's going to be some sort of major uh, peace thing uh, it all falls apart or or Israel shifts back to the right well you know first of all obviously this is um, this is a long process and I don't expect that there's going to be you know 
quick resolution in any kind of way. I mean, like like any other movement, you know, and we are building the movement here, and I talk with my colleagues there about building and sustaining the movement for peace so that we have a population that is engaged and pushing for that and fighting for that and ready for that when the opportunities arise. Clearly, in the Israeli political realm, that's not this, that's not this minute, right? There were times, I think, all, all of us, you know, remember the 90s and the Oslo period, and I was there, and I thought, you know, I thought we were there. I thought we were about to have that peaceful two-state solution, um, and obviously that did not happen. No one thinks we're there right now, um, so we need to keep doing the work to keep that possibility alive, because there are things, for instance, if this Israeli government did, in fact, annex completely the West Bank, I'm not sure what happens after that, right? It's a different, it's a different issue then. Um, and, you know, for, there are, of course, many people in organizations right now that have, have taken to using the apartheid terminology to describe. Some of them are talking about the occupied territories. Some of them are talking about Israel overall. And people, other people get very upset by the use of that word. You can argue about it one way or the other. But if the government were to go ahead and annex the entirety of the West Bank and make it, it make it legally Israel as opposed to an occupation and not give voting rights and other rights to those people, then there's no argument anymore. And that, that clearly, unequivocally uh, meets that definition. So I think the job for all of us who, who care about peace and are working for that better future for Israelis and Palestinians alike is to find ways to keep those things from happening and to make progress. And there are, over the years, even with all the setbacks and all the challenges, you know, there are positives. There are areas of progress. And we have to keep working for those. One of the things that I think is most challenging is, you know, getting out of our old paradigm of who, who's to blame. Um, because everybody is very good at blaming the other. And... One, there's certainly plenty of blame for different groups and different people all around, but also that doesn't matter. That's not, you know, if that's not the right question. If you are looking for a peaceful, just solution and you want to get us to a better future so that the next generations of Palestinians and Israeli children have better lives and are not enveloped by this conflict, then arguing about who was right or who was wrong in 1948 or 67 or 73 or 82 or, you know, onward and onward doesn't help. And so there's a job, you know, unfortunately in this realm, the historians and the politicians and the advocates mix up their jobs sometimes. I think that the people who want to write papers about what truly happened in the conflict in 2012, um, that that's well and good, but that we can't be beholden and uh, trapped by that history and who's, and who's blame and whose mistakes. So from your point of view, you want to, to sen- essentially set a his- history aside and move on based on whatever the facts or realities are now. Rather than I mean, argue no about these aside. old no events. No one in that region, region has ever set history aside. <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's right. right? But I would ask say you. People can't need, do that. Yeah. We yeah. need to look to what are our opportunities for the future. I mean, literally, if, you, if you're part of the discourse around Israel and Palestine, 
you can't go more than a few days or weeks before somebody saying, oh, this is all Yasser Arafat's fault because he didn't accept fully the agreement at Y in this year and at Camp David he said this. And, and you know, again, I'm not arguing whether that's true or correct or not. Lots of people want to argue about that. It's just not at all a good use of anyone's time or energy now going forward. So, okay, right, pause it for a moment. Yes, this is all Yasser Arafat's fault. Fine. What are we going to do about it now? Or disagree with that and say, no, no, Arafat was a heroic leader who was willing to put down the gun and make peace. Okay, fine. What are we going to do about it now? And there are whole organizations and politicians and people who are just wrapped up in looking at this almost like it's, you know, the World Cup's going on now, almost like it's a sporting event, right? Like, how do I score points for my team? How do I prove that my team is more righteous and my team is more just? And as somebody who's spent, you know, quite a few years working on this right now, I just, I don't care about that. I'm not interested in standing up here. And and I told you at the beginning, like, I'm a dual Israeli-American, right? I have dual citizenship. I clearly come to this with a perspective. I'm not uh, you know, a neutral observer, but I'm not interested in spending my time standing up here arguing about how, you know, historically until this moment, Israel is always in the right. Because even if that's true, which I don't think it is, again, I think there's plenty of blame to go around, that doesn't help anyone. And so we need to figure out how do we get past point scoring and how do we get to progress. And that's always the, the hard thing in all of these conflicts. You look at everything around the world to sort of say, okay, you know, let's sort of draw a line under the past and move forward. You know, you've seen things, you know, in various African company, you know, countries, you know, truth and reconciliation commissions, you know, Good Friday agreements in, in, yeah. in Northern Ireland, where it's very hard to sort of say, okay, you know, let's sort of agree that the, the bad things happened in the past and let's see from today what can we do to progress positively. And that's the you know, really hard thing to get people to do, you know, people on the street and politicians. To, that's, you know, that's not human nature. We like to dwell on our – it's easier to dwell on our grievances and argue over the past than to figure out how to make the future better. So what should Americans do at our, at to, to encourage peace in, in, in the Middle East? Maybe, uh, maybe they've been on one side of the conflict or the other, but, but – but still want to move for peace, even if they think the Palestinians have been mostly right, the Israelis have been mostly wrong, or vice versa. They want to see peace. What should they do in the in, uh, Americans in the U.S.? Right, that's a great question because again, I think it comes back to how do we move? You know, you said if they've been on one side or the other. So if we imagine it as you know four quadrants, and you're on the left is. Israel and you're on the right is, you know, Team Israel and on the right is Team Palestine. But if you look at the top and the bottom as, you know, Team team Progress and Peace or Team Status Quo and Conflict, I think we need to switch, right, switch from being on the left team or the right team to being on the top team. And what that looks like as Americans is being clear that, Right. Our politics writ large, not universally, but writ large has been, you know, quote unquote, pro-Israel. And I am pro-Israel. Like I said, I'm a citizen, but I am also pro-Palestine and pro-peace. Right. And the idea is to make those things not mutually exclusive anymore. So what I would call on American citizens to do is to engage around this topic, 
with your elected officials. And obviously our foreign policy primarily plays out on the federal level. But as we talked about a little earlier, we're seeing relevant things come up on the state level, on the local level. I just dealt with, I, I live in, in Montgomery County, Maryland. We just had a county council resolution related to this. So at almost every level of government right now, this is an issue. And to engage, and to engage with an eye that says not, how do I score a point for my team, or how do I prove that we're right and they're wrong, but rather, how do we do something positive to move us forward together? And, you know, I think this is also, you know, support the organizations that are doing this, obviously Americans for Peace Now, but there are Jewish organizations, there are Arab and Muslim organizations, there are a range of other voices that, you know, are not affiliated with either of those communities that are working for peace and working towards support elected officials who share that view. And I think it's that mind switch from scoring points for my team and proving we're right to moving toward peace that is the essential bedrock of how we're going to get there. Americans for Peace Now has an excellent website that will tell you a lot of information, folks. So if you're interested in this issue and following up, Americans for Peace Now, and that you just type that name in, and and, and it comes yeah. up really well. And uh, it's, it's peacenow.org if anyone wants uh, the URL okay. directly. Why don't you repeat that again for us, Hada? Peacenow.org is the URL for the website. You can sign up to get our emails there. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We're still on Twitter for the moment, as long as Twitter exists, uh, and Facebook <laughs> <Yeah>. and Instagram. <laughs> A good point. Um, Years ago, I, I worked with a, a bunch of uh, Muslim guys from different countries in the Middle East, and uh, they were becoming U.S. citizens, and they liked to torture us by asking us the citizenship questions, asking Native <laughs> Americans this. But um, it was New York City, and um, they came to me one time, and they said, Steve, there's nobody to vote for. And I said, well, no, there's, you know, we got two political parties. You can pick one or the other. I said, you know, most of the staff, most of the unionized staff were all Democrats, but the owners of the, of the business and most of the customers, they're, they're Republicans and we're Democrats. And they're, you know, I gave them this little spiel. And I said, I don't, you know, you're telling you what to do. And they said to me, there's nobody to vote for. I looked at them and I realized they meant, there's nobody that was standing up for their Muslim point of view or for their political ideas in the Middle East, that that's what they meant. And I said, the only thing you can do is organize and, and, and form political groups just like uh, uh, all the Jewish groups. There's, there's nothing else to do here except engage in politics. Uh, but it was interesting. They really felt that out of it even as they were becoming citizens. Well, we've enjoyed having with you. Do we have any announcements? Uh, not not so much, right? No specific ones on that. Just that uh, we're working on a couple of upcoming shows back to the more local level, looking if, looking ahead to what the Arizona legislature and the governor might be doing next year now that we have a, a Democratic governor in Arizona and still a Republican legislature. So we're looking at some shows ahead to talk about those issues. with Karen's sort of the, our expert on, on that. Do you, uh, you've got one minute uh, is it, can you sum up anything in, in one minute? You know, I think the one-minute summary is that this isn't a one-month campaign or a one-year campaign, right? That 
this is something, and you know, we see it in our own country in movements, and we see it in other countries. This is something that is going to take lifetimes of, of work, and hopefully those lifetimes are moving things uh, in better and positive and more just directions for people. But even if we get to something better, it, it's still going to take work. So being part of that, that movement for peace and sustaining that movement for peace is, you know, it is, it, it's my calling, and I hope other people uh, hear that and will join that and support that and be part of it. So thank you for having me on today. Thank you for being with us, folks. Uh, VVID.org. All our podcasts for the last 11 years are on that website. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZF. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.